You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. I think it'd be good before we start this morning for us to go in prayer because as we were singing that last song, it was overwhelming me that we were seeing, God, we are... The world is behind us. The cross is before us. There's no turning back. And what was overwhelming is, if that's true, if, 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 if everything we believe in Christ isn't true, then we're to be pitied, as Paul says, because there is no hope in this life other than Christ. So as we begin this morning, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, as we have just heard your word read to us, God, we pray this morning that we will understand the heart of this apostle writing to these believers, but not that we would understand it intellectually, but God, that we will understand the emotion and the affection that he has for these believers. And God, may you then use that to press on us that we are called to love and care for one another in that same way. Because God, as we just sang, Everything that we are living for and striving for is for you because everything behind us wasn't worth us living for anyway. And so, God, may we give all of ourselves to you and to the people that you have called as your children. God, we love you. We give you praise this morning in the name of the Father and the Son. Amen. So, Pastor Cody, let me just go ahead and tell you um, to buckle up. And I say that because last week... When we started, or when Pastor Cody was preaching out of First Thessalonians, the end of 1 and 2, it was a lot. And he talked about God's, uh, how, we, how Paul had given himself tremendously for, for the people, the Christians at Thessalonica. And, and it was our hope and it was our prayer that that set with you, the weight of how Paul exhausted himself for the gospel, that it would sit with you and, the, and, and it would, the Lord would use it to impress upon you what it looked like to give of ourselves to the things of the Lord. Well, to be honest, it doesn't really get any easier today. The depth and the extent of, of, of Paul's love on display for the believers in our text today, to be quite honest, is daunting. And by the way, it's a standard that, that Pastor Cody and I have tried to hold ourselves to, but, but let me be really transparent. We fail to meet this, to, to love you, to love one another as fervently and as deeply as Paul loved these Thessalonians. And yet, it's the standard that we're convinced is what God would desire for us. But not just your pastors, but for each one of us in this room today. To love one another as fervently, as deeply as Paul loves these Thessalonian believers. And I'm convinced if we will learn, if God will teach us to feel the pressure of concerning ourselves with each other's faithfulness and each other's fidelity to the gospel, then it would be, we would be the most beautiful family that this world has ever seen. Because we would be living not just for ourselves, but for the glory of Christ in each other. Last week we looked at a hope shaped ministry of Paul. Today we're going to look at a hope-shaped desire of the apostle for these believers. So if we could boil all of what David just read for us from our text, we would see that Paul is deeply moved 
to labor for the faithfulness of the church in Thessalonica. And then believer, your takeaway, your hopefully what you leave with is that this, may the saving work of Christ compel us to a greater desire for God's people. That's what we're going to look at today. Our love of the church and what are those effects on us based on that. So, passage breaks down in four pretty easy to see sections. Firstly, the love of the church provokes inescapable affection. Paul's intense passion for the church leads to a genuine friendship and love for the people of the church. Now, the reason I say it like that is because sometimes we can be so concerned and we can care so deeply for the doctrine of the church in a corporate level. We can be Concerned about the direction that the church is headed. Which ministries and, and programs are we to be involved in? But sometimes we don't seem to have that same deep love and affection for the people that actually make up the church. Hopefully you know this. The church isn't a building. Covenant Hope Church isn't this campus. We just meet here. The outside world may look at us and see, oh, there's a corporation or there's an organization. But from God's perspective, we're a collection of his children covenanted together here to locally carry out his mission here and around the world. Covenant Hope Church is you. It, it, it's me. It's us. And so here we see the Apostle Paul. By the way, the one who cares deeply that they get it theologically right, right? Look at Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. He cares that you know what to believe rightly. But here we see him show great affection for the actual people of the church of Thessalonica. So I want us to look at, I want us to be encouraged and maybe even challenged by Paul's affection. The first way we want to look at this is a familial affection that Paul has for these believers. In verse 17, he says, But as for us, brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time, in person, not in heart, and then he goes on. Last week in our passage, we saw Paul refer to himself as an infant. In other words, coming gently among them. He used the language of a caring mother and then of a father who wants to care for his children. And now he addresses them as brothers and sisters. And the word, depending on your translation, it says, after we were forced. Unfortunately, I don't think that that word necessarily conveys all the weight of the tenor of that word. A better translation would be torn away from or orphaned from you. And if orphaned, it conveys the feeling as having one's family ripped apart. If you were to look back at Acts 17, you know that Paul was ministering with these Thessalonian believers and because of persecution uh, on Jason and maybe the house that they were staying at or meeting in, Paul, they are whisked away quickly. And Paul says, when we had to leave like that, it feels like we were ripped away from our family. And so Paul's using mother, father, brother, sister, child, we are orphaned from you, every possible relational connection in the family to draw out his affection. Look, many of you know, I don't have to explain to you what it means to have a familial affection. You love your family. You protect and you cherish the time you get with them. When, when someone in your family is hurting, you hurt. When someone in your family is celebrating, you're excited and celebrating along with them. And Paul says, I love you Thessalonians like that. And because of my love and affection for you, 
It's nothing to sacrifice and serve you and and labor for your good, just like many of you do so for your own families. So familial affection. But it's also an affection that produces longing, a desirous affection. Paul continues in verse 17. He says, brothers and sisters, after we are orphaned from you for a short time, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. I I once had a co-worker many years ago that uh, had a girlfriend at the time that he seemed to very much enjoy. But at the same time, you get to about Thursday or Friday if you're working a normal Monday to Friday, and, and you realize that about Thursday, maybe before then, depending on how the week's going, you start talking about what you're doing on the weekend. And it would happen pretty often that he would tell us, sitting around the office, how excited he was that his girlfriend was working on the weekend so that you know, he could do what he wanted to do and be him and he didn't have to hang out with her. I didn't have a bucket for that. When Megan and I were in college and we were dating, we were at two different colleges but not super far apart, it, it wasn't a... I, I have to go see her. It was a, it was a restraint to only, have to only get to see her once a week. We would have hopefully one, one night of the week that we would get to see each other, usually on like a Saturday night, Friday night. And, and it, was, it was work to not see her. And so I think this is the kind of, of, of anticipation, this is the kind of affection that Paul has for these believers. Look at what he says. Hey, I'm not with you in person, but man, my heart is with you. I I greatly desired, I made every effort to return to you. I wanted to see you face to face. Time and again, I wanted to be there. In fact, Paul even switches the pronoun there from that collective we to I. He's telling these Thessalonian believers, hey, it's not just this simple, pithy, uh, we wanted to see you. No, he's like, I want you to know I, I miss seeing you and desire greatly to see you. Paul has an intense affection and love for these believers. And Paul says, there's one reason why I'm not there with you right now. I can't be with you because Satan is hindering me. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. Paul doesn't elaborate here. But there was something at work that was preventing Paul. And we know in other places that Paul was prevented from going somewhere because the Holy Spirit said, no, don't go there. But here he's saying, something's at work from Satan and I can't be there with you. This letter was written when Paul was ministering in Corinth, so it's possible if we look at 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it's of no great surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Paul's dealing with some really difficult things that he attributes to Satan himself working in the midst of people. And so some type of satanic forces are at work, and maybe this is what he's referring to of why he's preventing him from coming to see him. It's basically like he's saying, guys, I really want to see you, but I haven't been able to deal with these things right on my plate yet, and so I haven't been freed up to come see you, but I want you to know that my not returning to you is not a reflection of a lack of affection for you. Paul desires to be with these believers. And as if Paul could say anything more about the way he loves these believers, 
like he always does, it seems like he just, he ups it one more level. We'll call this championship level affection. Because look at what he says in verses 19 and 20. Paul writes to these Thessalonians, for who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Now, we'll be honest. When we read Paul attributing to the Thessalonians that they are going to be his hope, his joy, and his glory, it's not simply that I feel like Paul is maybe overstating something, but it almost feels borderline heretical. We'll come back to the crown of boasting in just a minute, but, but he says, you are our hope, you are our joy, you are our glory at the second coming of Christ. Really? But I thought God was to be our hope and our joy and our glory. When Christ returns, aren't we going to be looking at him and not the rest of you? Paul himself wrote in Romans 5. He attributes all three of these to God when he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. In other words, justified, standing in grace. And he says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not the Thessalonians. So how does finding our joy in, our glory in, our hope in people relate to our finding that in the Lord? Just a quick aside, at times these, when you feel that tension or it looks like there's an apparent paradox or contradiction, it's really easy to throw up our hands and go, clearly the Bible isn't true. I can see that. Look, Paul says two different things here. Or maybe, or maybe we are called to dig just a little bit deeper and find some really beautiful truth excavated in the scriptures. Paul says, right in Philippians, my brothers rejoice in the Lord, and he says later, rejoice in the Lord always. So for Paul, it's really clear that the whole understanding of the Christian life is that our joy is to be found in Christ. The Westminster Confession, many of you may know the first part of that, says man's chief end is to glorify God and what? Enjoy Him forever. We are to find our joy in the Lord, and yet, Paul says, it's in you. We're going to put a couple of passages up on the screen, and I hope to, I don't have time to do all of it, so we're going to draw the line quickly, and if we can always discuss more in your missional communities, or if you have questions, you can ask. But starting with Hebrews 2, or 12, verse 2, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, based on this verse, why did Christ endure the cross? Was it so that he could sit down at the right hand of the throne of God, that God could be his joy? I don't think so. He already had that. He had that position. He had that joy before he ever became a human being. He didn't need to endure the cross to get that. He had that positionally forever. Which means he endured the cross to achieve something else that would also be part of his joy. Looking now at 2 Corinthians 3. 
We could go to Ephesians 5, but I'm going to take 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we read this. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Ephesians 5, Paul links Christ giving himself up, that enduring the cross with making something pure and glorious. He calls it a bride for Christ. Here in 2 Corinthians 3, because Christ endured the cross, Paul writes that we are being transformed into the same image. The same image as what? It says as the glory of the Lord. That's sanctification. That's when we use that word. That's what we mean. We as Christians are continually being transformed, shaped, molded, formed, chiseled out to reflect the glory of the Lord. So when Paul says these Christians here in this text are his glory, his hope, his joy, he means it. These followers of Christ, these infant Christians who the Holy Spirit is working on to transform them into the image of the glory of the Lord, piece by piece, Paul says, when Christ returns, I'm going to glory in Christ, and I'm going to glory in you because I'm going to watch you reflect the glory of Christ. So when Paul says, you will be my crown of boasting, it's in that context. Now, when we hear the word crown, we think of something that's on a head of a king or queen. But in this case, it was a wreath that was placed on the head of a champion runner in a competition. And so Paul's saying that when, when Christ returns, when this race of the Christian life is over, when I look around and I'm going to see all of you as counted among the number of saints of Christ, it will feel as though I am winning and my boasting is not in me, but in the glory of the Lord for what he's done in your life. Man, that sounds awesome. Sounds like a beautiful picture of what a church should look like, and yet let's make it personal. How many times, or even right now, if you were to look to the right and left, and maybe you're nervous to do so, how many of the people who are sitting right here do you look at and think of them as being your glory, your hope, and your joy? It's really easy to go, we're always focused on Christ, and Paul says it's both. Because you and me are called to reflect and be made into the image of the glory of Christ. Because when we view brothers and sisters in Christ like Paul viewed these Christians, then the intensity of our affections for one another will be inescapable. We will genuinely see one another as family. Not just say, hey, we're a part of a church, we're a family of God. No, no, no. We will not say it just in word, but in our care and how much we desire to see and be around one another. That how much we want to know one another, serve one another. And that because when all of us are together, when Christ returns, we get to be together rejoicing in the Lord. We are called to love one another. And that genuine love will, will provoke deep affection. But not just deep affection. In the next section, the first five verses of chapter 3, the love for the church is going to propel us to sacrifice and to serve. Now, this section's a little bit different. I want us to do a little bit of work here. If you see the, the first verse and a half, and, and then really like the last uh, verse, or the first part of the last verse, you'll see some similarities, right? Paul writes at the beginning, when we, could sit, when we could stand it no longer, we sent Timothy. And then at the end, he says, when I could stand it no longer, I sent him. What do you mean that I could stand it no longer? What's Paul, what's Paul worried about? What's Paul concerned about? Well, there's a parallel again in verse 3 and the second half of verse 5. It's a parallel, but it's on opposite sides of the coins. Look what I mean. 
Paul's saying when we can stand it no longer, when we are concerned that, that no one's faith will be shaken. All right, that's one side. And then on the flip side of that, Paul's saying that's from your perspective. From our perspective, we're fearing that our labor might be for nothing. Paul's saying we can't stand it anymore, so I'm sending Timothy to you. The chapter starts with therefore. We hopefully learn by now that that's pointing us back to something. So because you are our glory, because you are our hope, because you are our joy, and because now I'm concerned and I fear that you're about to shipwreck your faith, I've got to do something. And that something is going to come at a personal cost of the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul says he's going to be left alone. And the placement of that word alone in the original text, it was to be emphasized. You remember we already talked about Acts 17 a little bit, but Paul goes on. He leaves Thessalonica, he goes to Berea, and he starts to have fruitful ministry there, but the same things are happening, and and all of a sudden there's attacks again from these Jewish leaders, and they whisk Paul away, and he leaves Timothy and Silvanus in Berea to continue ministry, and he, he, as he's whisking away, he leaves them instructions, say, tell Timothy, tell Silvanus to come to me as soon as they can, and Paul goes on to Athens. And guys, Athens is a difficult place for ministry, to say the least. It's full of idol worship and all kinds of worldly philosophy. And Paul's already written in other places in his letters that ministering alone is, is difficult. Ministering alone is draining and, in fact, depressing. And man, he couldn't wait for Timothy to join him again. And yet, even though Timothy would bless him, even though ministerially speaking there would be a lot of work for Timothy to do, because of Paul's genuine love for the church, he says, they need you more than I do. And so he sends Timothy away. That was a sacrifice for the Apostle Paul. But his deep love of the church made that worth it. Before we look at exactly what Timothy would do, notice in the second half of 3 in verse 4 how Paul has this, what feels like a slight aside. He changes the pronoun again to to we and he is including himself because they're talking about not just the afflictions of the Thessalonians, but now Paul is joining in a much bigger, a much grander uh, understanding of something and he's, he's merging it with the immediate more local impact of the Thessalonians and the reality of the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were facing affliction. Paul joins himself and says, look, this is what it looks like to be a believer. I told you that when I was there, and now it's happening. If you are in Christ, expect affliction. Jesus himself said that. That none of us were going to be greater than our master, and the evil people of this world rejected him, and he was punished, and he was crucified, so we should expect nothing less. So Paul was saying, hey, I... I know what you're going through, and understand that, man, we're right here in it with you. So love of the church propels them to sacrifice, but it also propels them to serve. So how is Timothy supposed to serve the church? By speaking words of life. Look again at verse 2 and 3. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these, you, your Thessalonian afflictions. I want to look at the job title that Paul gives him and then the role. What is the job title that Paul gives to his dear friend Timothy? Look at it. It says it is God's co-worker. 
Paul doesn't say our co-worker or my co-worker. He is in other places called Timothy a co-laborer. But here he says Timothy is God's co-worker. Because he's drawing attention that, look, I'm not there. But ultimately, I'm not the one to sustain you anyway. It is the Lord is working. And now I'm sending Timothy along with that to help you in what God has called for you. To be strengthened and to be uh, built up. So Timothy is given the job title of God's co-worker. And what is the role of God's co-worker? Well, that co-worker is to strengthen and to encourage the church. Look there at that, that wording. It says strengthen and it says so that no one be shaken. Those are intentionally opposites. The idea of to be shaken is that a foundation is unsettled, causing anything to be built on top of that foundation to be wobbly. Think about a tower built on a concrete slab that is not settled. That tower is not going to be secured. And so if you were to go to that tower and say, you got to fix it, maybe one of the first things you're going to do is you're going to put some guy wires in to hold it steady while you fix the foundation, because ultimately that's what's needed. So that's what Timothy's called to do. But again, hold on. Isn't it God's job? To establish and strengthen? Isn't it God who establishes the believer, who saves them from their sins, who keeps them from messing up their faith? Yet Paul says he's sending a human to do this work. Because again, God has ordained that his co-workers are going to carry out his mission to one another. Paul isn't, I mean, Timothy isn't just Paul's co-worker, he's the Lord's. And he's set to strengthen the church. But how is he called to strengthen the church? Because he is called to encourage or exhort. That just means to speak words of comfort, to speak words that help them press on when life is difficult. Sometimes it means rebuking what is wrong so that it will ultimately build them up. Timothy is to strengthen a wobbly faith church by speaking words of encouragement or words of exhortation. So that's wonderful. So apparently you need to be a great motivational speaker. You need to probably have some type of degree from the local seminary, right? So that you know the right huge vocabulary of right Christian words so that you can strengthen the church. Timothy, isn't that right? No, that's not what he says. What words is Timothy called to speak to this church? What's the text say? Timothy is God's co-worker, what? In the gospel of Christ. Timothy, build up the church, encourage them, in the gospel of Christ. Speak the gospel and all of its implications to build those up in the church. The task of God's co-worker is to remind. The task of God's co-worker is to proclaim the good news that Jesus died so that you might live. And even though, church in Thessalonica, you may be right now facing afflictions, but let me tell you something, it's not going to last forever. But God's saving work in Christ, that lasts for eternity. Speak words of life to the church. The third effect of genuinely loving the church is that it procures mutual encouragement. I told you Paul's in Corinth. Timothy has rejoined him. Paul's eager to hear what Timothy found out when he was sent to, to the church at Thessalonia. He, he, he said, how are they doing? Do, do they miss me? You know, everybody wants to know. Do they miss me as much as I miss them? How are they holding up in the midst of their afflictions? And verse 6 says that Timothy brought a good report of their faith and of their love. And oh, by the way, they're longing to see you just like you're longing to see them. 
Man, I love it. Look at verse 7. Paul's encouraged. Paul's encouraged from others' faithfulness. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and affliction that we, Paul, Silvanius, are, are, are working through, are going through, in all of our distress and affliction, we were encouraged by you through your faith. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. Paul's facing affliction. But Paul's the one who sent Timothy to encourage the church. But Paul says, now I am likewise encouraged by your faithfulness. Man, I love that. The two-way street of encouragement in the church the love of the church produces mutual encouragement. But when we say the word encouragement, I feel like sometimes it's a little bit, man, I feel, I feel a little bit better. That's not what Paul says. Verse 8, he says, for now we live if you stand firm in the faith. In other words, what Paul's saying is he's able to really live if they continue standing strong in the faith. In other words, it's the Thessalonians' faithfulness truly affects the vitality of Paul's life and ministry. And he's not even with them. Their faithfulness genuinely affects the vitality of Paul's life and ministry. So I was thinking this week, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced someone else's faithfulness in the Lord in part has encouraged and increased your faithfulness or your encouragement or your stick to itness in the faith of the Lord? Some of you in this room, your love of Christ, his church, his mission, his gospel, they've strengthened me even from afar in difficult times over the last few years. Maybe it's when for you work is overwhelming or when my faith was weak or when I, I felt like giving up laboring for what mattered or fighting sin or caring for others more than I all. Your faith, but not just your faith, your faith and your words of testimony of how the Lord has been faithful and is faithful to you, it builds me up. That's what I believe Paul's saying here. It's like when a guy is madly in love with a lady. And he says words to her like, I don't think I could go on living without you. I think that's what Paul's saying here. The woman would understand the sentiment, even if it's hopefully you don't have to find out. But Paul is saying your faith, your faithfulness, your fidelity to the gospel, your growing in holiness truly affects my ministry in life, even though we're not even in the same city. The fact I know that you're laboring for the same things I'm laboring for is an encouragement. We likewise can be encouraged by one another. But then our encouragement leads to praise. Now that we have a good report from the Thessalonians, now that Paul's, encur Paul's encouraged by them, and as he's saying, as we're constantly in prayer for you, seeking the Lord that we may come and see you, that we may build you up. Man, we are so overwhelmed, we don't even have any idea of how to thank the Lord for this. Our encouragement leads us to praise. Paul says, how can we thank? I mean, what thanksgiving could I even give to God in return for all of the, experience, the joy we experience before our God? Or maybe instead of all the joy we experience, your translation may replace that word experience with rejoice. In other words, I'm not just basking in the joy that I see from you. What it, it's more of like Paul is watching, and he's watching these Thessalonians have their joy, have their glory in the Lord, and he's sitting there watching that. Instead of just enjoying it himself, he joins in their praise. 
on their behalf. It's that he is watching them praise and he joins in their praise and he's overwhelmed because he has no other words to thank the Lord for other than, God, we rejoice in you. And we pray that we can go and continue on what is lacking, which just simply means this is not about sin. They're an immature church. They are to continue in their growth of holiness. We'll see that in verse 13. And so Paul says, I want to come. I want to be a part of watching you grow into full maturity. And lastly, love for the church petitions the Lord for the maturity of others' holiness. It petitions the Lord for the maturity of others' holiness. We just said that Paul says, as we pray, and then he summarizes his prayer, but Slight change here in verse 11. He doesn't just tell them he's praying for them. And in other places he would tell them he's praying for them and even what he's praying for. But in this case, he's praying for them. He's praying over them while using really personal language. It's a prayer to God, but he says, God, direct our way to you. May the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness. I don't know if you caught that, but it's a little bit weird. I could say, I could, I could write to you, my friend, saying, I am praying to God this, that I may be able to come and see you at some point. He's really telling them, he's speaking to them directly while pointing his heart towards the things of the Lord. I'm calling that bi-directional language, and it's beautiful. His heart's addressed to God, even though while he's speaking words to one another. I thought about, what, if it, what would it look like if we adopted that kind of language? Instead of simply saying, I'll pray for you when, we get, when I get home, I'm literally going to pray, speaking to you, but pray to our God. That's what he's doing. He's praying over them in a very personal way, directing his heart towards the Lord. So the content of Paul's prayer is simply this. I want to see you. He's made that really clear. I want your love to grow for one another and for all people. But then both of those are for so that your hearts would be blameless in holiness when Christ returns. Your version may or may not have the so that in it. Uh, that's okay. Uh, but, but in the original text, it is there to point us to Paul is building all of this, saying, the reason I love you, the reason my love is, a, is abounding so that I will serve you and sacrifice for you is because it is my role, my goal, that you will grow in holiness to full maturity. But how does Paul expect these things to happen? Look again at those same phrases. Lord, you direct our way. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love. In verse 13, that he may make your hearts blameless in holiness. God underst- Paul understood that any of his labor was in vain if it wasn't for the providential work of God. Which is comforting, by the way. There are times in which I really want to love someone better. Maybe it's someone that we just, we kind of just don't, you know, we don't mix well. And Paul says, now you pray to the Lord, Lord, make my heart grow in love. Make my heart blameless in holiness. In the same way that God must act so that Paul can see them, in the same way that God must act to grow our love, God also is the one that makes us holy. That's what the word saints means in verse 13, holy ones, ones made holy. Which means if you're in Christ, you are a saint of the Lord. 
And you are that, and you will continue to mature into fully into that because of the sovereign and the faithful work of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit in your life. Paul's most earnest desire in this entire section is for these Thessalonians to mature to complete holiness. So if that's the case, what does it mean? What does holiness really mean? Because to be honest, it's one of those church words that we know that means God's holy and the world's not, and we kind of leave it there. It means that, that if we are growing in holiness, we are like God in that we are set apart. We stand apart from sin and the evilness of this world. And we are continually being made more into that image of the glory of Christ. If that's what Paul's laboring for, if that's his culminating petition to the Lord, then how are they to do that? It's great if I say, hey guys, we are all to be growing in holiness. And you go, awesome, how we do that? Well, syntactically, verse 13 comes right after verse 12. And his prayer for them in verse 12 is what? That they would abound in love. Love is a major component of growth and holiness. One author put it this way, maintaining a close link between the two clauses, verse 12 and 13, that blameless, sanctified hearts can only grow and bloom in the soil of a genuine An abundant love. Jesus said something pretty similar when he boiled all of God's law down into two statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love others. Grow in holiness. I'm not talking about a superficial, man-made idea of what love is. I'm talking about how God in heaven defined love when he sent his son to this earth to take on the form of of a servant who, when he's hanging on the cross, even though he was innocent, became guilty because he put our sin on himself and then he died paying for our sins. God defined that as love. And when we grow in that type of sacrificial love, man, we are growing in holiness. What the Thessalonians needed most in the midst of their afflictions in their immature faith. What they needed most was for God to grow them in their love for one another and for all people. Deep, affectionate, abiding love is how God was molding them into the image of the glory of Christ. And church, this deep love is what God calls for us as well. This genuine love for one another pushes us to care for, to strive for, to to be concerned with the holiness of one another. And when that is our aim, when our aim is to concern ourselves with the holiness of each other, then to sacrifice and to serve, it's much easier to do. To share the love of Christ when we've been so convinced of what Christ has done for us, to share that with other people who have yet to experience that love becomes much easier and we're much more willing to do it. I think so often we think if we can just get enough information and we can, we can look at the text and get all the theological truths right that we're going to grow in holiness. And Paul says it's great to have that right, but you need to grow in your love for one another. And it's a love that pushes us. Maybe even past the point where we're comfortable with how much we care for one another. Paul was a passionate disciple maker. I think sometimes when we read God's word and we see Paul writing out all of these beautiful theological treaties and we're like, man, he's so stoic. And Paul, 
Paul was passionate. Paul was a passionate disciple maker. He didn't simply, as Pastor Cody pointed out last week, preach and then move. Preach and then bolt. Now he gave of himself. He gave all of himself physically. He was tired laboring for the Lord. He even said that he gave his own life. You could see that even be he gave his own soul. He also gave his whole affection and his love for these people. And that deep love made it easy to send Timothy when even though Paul wanted him. That made it easy to go into places that were difficult and spend his life ministering because it was worth it. Because he cared about the full maturity of the holiness of the Thessalonians. Church, the reality is God has called each one of you to be his co-workers if you're in Christ. So what's it going to take for us to look like this kind of disciple maker this kind of servant of the lord god's co-worker let me start by maybe hoping that you don't sit here today and say what one of my kids said this week when we were talking about that which is yeah dad but that's paul as if well i mean he's an apostle so like i don't really have to match up to that as if somehow that gets us off the hook well okay I see what you're saying, and we've probably all done that at times, going, yeah, I don't match up to that, but it's Paul, it's okay. I don't think that's what God's Word is here for. It's to teach us about who God is and about who we are, yes, but it's also to point us to the examples of how God has called us to live and how we ought to, to, to give of ourselves for God and all the things about what God, is, what God loves so church, if we're to be a co-worker of God, a faithful co-worker of God, that we're to love the church in a desirous way, a desirous way that propels us to sacrifice, a desirous way that propels us to serve one another, to care about the holiness of one another. That's not just my job or Pastor Cody's job, it's each one of our jobs to care about the holiness of one another. And let me encourage you, each one of you can do that. Each one of you can work to strengthen and encourage one another. Timothy didn't need all the right words. Timothy didn't need a right degree. or He didn't need to be a Christian for X number of years. He didn't need any of that. He needed the gospel. Many of you in this room, even in the recent past, or many more maybe in the future, are going to speak to someone whose faith is wobbling. Maybe there's someone in this room right now whose faith is struggling. And the words that we need to speak, the words that you will need to speak to them, are words that you already know. They're the gospel of Jesus. Speak those. Pastor Cody often gives us the picture of, of the gospel isn't just something we dive into and then we get saved and then we just move on to something more, you know, more important or more deep. And he said, no, 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 the gospel is the thing that not only gets us saved, but it's the thing that we continue to swim in. The gospel continues to save it goes on saving. It goes on transforming. So, coworker of God, speak the gospel to one another. Because we're going to face afflictions. We're going to face trials. And, and the question is like, well, how come it's the trials? How come it's the afflictions that really cause us, our faith, to be weak? Because we believe a lie. We somehow tell ourselves that God's not big enough to do anything about this thing that I'm going through. God's not strong enough to pull me through, or worse, God doesn't care enough. See, the gospel says God is big enough, 
He is strong enough, and he does care enough for you to see you through every trial. So therefore, don't be shaken, dear brother or sister. God cares for you. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty or the strong hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. When you speak the gospel to one another, You are truly speaking words of life. Peter would go on right below that and write, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. Remind one another that what you're going through right now, God cares for you, no matter what it is. In fact, he couldn't care more for you than he already does. Because he gave his only son so that you might be restored, established, strengthened, and supported for how long? For forever. Because Peter writes to him, be dominion forever. And so you, God's co-worker, you have the opportunity to speak words of life. And by the way, when words don't feel like they're enough, then go and display the effects of the gospel tangibly caring for, loving, serving one another as the hands and feet of Christ. God's called us. God's called you to his work and his mission. What a glorious job to be given. So our work, fellow co-workers, starts now. Pray with me. Father in heaven, God, God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is truly your words to us so that we may learn today, that we may be encouraged today, that we may be challenged today to love you and your people with a greater degree of intensity, of affection, of hearts that are willing to serve and to sacrifice that we may be concerned for the holiness of others. God, with the focus on the fact that you are coming back and that when you return, that we are excited to worship you and look around and glory in all of those in which you have saved and brought into full holiness with you, that you would call us saints. God, thank you that you would call us your coworker. Not because we deserve it, not because we know all the right things to say, but God, because you in Christ have saved us, wiped our slate clean, and then called us into a beautiful task of caring about the souls of one another. God, thank you for your word this morning. We love you. We praise you in the name of Jesus.